Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Last week, we partnered with the University of Notre Dame's Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government to host a conversation on religious exemptions under the Constitution. Religious exemptions allow individuals and organizations to be exempt from following certain generally applicable laws that they say burden their religious beliefs. Religious exemptions have been at the heart of some recent high-profile Supreme Court cases, as the court continues to vigorously debate what the scope of religious exemptions should be and in what instances they should be granted. This conversation highlights those current and the historic debates over religious exemptions. It features Douglas Laycock, author of the five-volume series The Collected Works on Religious Liberty, Vincent Philip Munoz, author of God and the Founders, and Kathleen Brady, author of The Distinctiveness of Religion in American Law. Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderates. This panel was streamed live on September 30, 2021. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center and to the first program in the new season of America's Town Hall. It is wonderful to reconvene after the summer and to see all of you again through the magic of Zoom and let us inspire ourselves for the learning ahead today and all year by reciting together the National Constitution Center's mission statement. Here we go, I know you remember it by heart. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the US Constitution among the American people on a non-partisan basis. And now um, I'm so excited to introduce you to three of America's greatest scholars of religious freedom and the free exercise clause uh, to debate one of the central questions in American constitutional uh, law today, to what degree does the First Amendment to the Constitution create a presumptive right to uh, exemptions from generally applicable laws for uh, religiously motivated groups and individuals? Um, to introduce uh, the show, I'm delighted that we're presenting it in partnership with the University of Notre Dame's Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. And I want to thank uh, Philip Munoz, who's the founding director of the Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government, and who's one of our panelists today for helping us put together such a great panel. So let me introduce uh, Philip and his other panelists, and then we will dive right in. Vincent Philip Munoz is Tocqueville Associate Professor of Political Science and concurrent Associate Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame, where he serves as the faculty director of under undergraduate minors in constitutional studies. Um, congratulations to Philip for recently winning a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship to support his forthcoming book on the natural right of religious liberty and the original meaning of the First Amendment religious clauses that's scheduled to be published by Chicago, the University of Chicago Press in 2022, and it's the subject of our panel today. And uh, Philip's first book is God and the Founders, Madison, Washington, and Jefferson, um, and he's written other great books as well. Kathleen Brady is Senior Fellow and McDonald Distinguished Fellow with the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. Her book, The Distinctiveness of Religion in American Law, Rethinking Religious Clause Jurisprudence, uh, was the recipient of a book award from the Catholic Press Association in 2016. And she has uh, also taught at Villanova and the University of Richmond uh, School of Law. And Douglas Laycock is Robert E. Scott, Distinguished Professor of Law, Class of 1963, Research Professor 
in honor of Graham C. Lilly and Peter W. Lowe and professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia School of Law. He's widely regarded as one of America's uh, leading authorities on religious liberty and his many writings uh, have been republished in a five volume collection, The Collected Works on Religious Liberty. He's also the author of the leading casebook, Modern American Remedies and the award-winning monograph, uh, The Death of the Irreparable Injury Rule and many articles um, in leading law reviews. Welcome, Philip, Kathleen, and Doug. Uh, Philip, I'm gonna begin uh, with a quotation from uh, James Madison, uh, which you cite in your writings about natural uh, law and the framers. Uh, Madison said that the opinions of men uh, reflecting the evidence presenting, presented to their own minds cannot be compelled by other men. And for that reason, he said that freedom of conscience was an unalienable right. I can't alienate to you the power to control my thoughts because I can't entirely control them myself. They're the product of my reason and reflection. Tell us more about Madison's original understanding of the rights of conscience as a natural right and why you believe that Madison and the other framers did not think that the free exercise clause of the First Amendment created a presumptive right of religious exemptions from generally applicable laws. Well, uh, thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank you to the National Constitution Center. It's, um, and let me speak just for a second in my capacity as director of Notre Dame Center for uh, Citizenship and Constitutional Government. I mean, we're just thrilled to co-sponsor this event and thrilled to be here with uh, Kathleen and Doug. I mean, Kathleen's book is really uh, uh, just a phenomenally good book uh, for those interested in this subject. Uh, I would encourage you to start with her book. And then Doug, of course, is uh, one of the, the nation's leading scholars on, on this subject. Uh, when you asked if I would participate, I was eager to do so just so I could actually listen to them. So I'm going to try to speak shortly and let them speak at length. Um, you ask about Madison and the, and the framers and the idea of, of natural rights. And so this is something I've been trying to understand. Uh, the founders um, called religious liberty an uh, inalienable natural right. Um, we see this in their in their documents, the, the Memorial Remonstrance, which Madison wrote in 1785, um, Jefferson's Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, with uh, uh, Virginia adopted in 1786. But we, you see it all the same language throughout the founding era, and especially in the state declarations of rights. Um, uh, not every state had a declaration of rights, but most of the founding era states did, and uh, starting with Virginia's and then uh, finishing with New Hampshire's in 1784. So the language was the same. You could say this is a common understanding. Uh, religious liberty is a natural right and an inalienable natural right. So the question is, what, what does that mean? Um, it's not altogether self-evident what uh, what it means to have an inalienable natural right. Um, in my understanding, and you know, very very uh, prominent scholars disagree with me here, but my understanding, uh, the founders thought was something like this: um, uh, because of the nature of how our religious opinions are formed, as you as you mentioned. Uh, through persuasion and evidence alone, and also because we have superior obligations to God um, through the nature of religious obligation. Uh, when we create a social compact, when we institute a government, we don't give uh, to that government jurisdiction over our religious exercises. Uh, so the, the rights of religious liberty, the natural rights of religious liberty are inalienable in, in a literal sense. We, we do not alienate authority over those rights to the government. Now, how does that translate into constitutional law, constitutional doctrine? I think it means that, um, in the founders' understanding, uh, that, that government lacks jurisdiction over religious exercises as such. 
Um, a couple examples, that's, that's a little bit abstract. Um, we don't give a th authority to government to issue preaching licenses. Uh, I mean, you have to have a license to do many things, many professions, a teaching license, a law license, a marriage license, a cosmetology license, uh, but we don't have preaching licenses. And why don't we give, why can't the government uh, issue preaching licenses? You know, you are certified to preach the gospels or preach the scriptures or whatever they are. Um, because government doesn't have authority to, to issue such licenses. Government doesn't have authority to issue such licenses because we, the people, never gave it authority over our religious exercises. So you can't make laws for religious exercises. You can't punish uh, religious exercises. You can't punish the absence of religious exercises. Um, so it's a jurisdictional concept, I think. Uh, what that means when uh, they wrote the First Amendment would be that Congress and with incorporation of the states uh, can't make laws that target religious exercises for prohibition or even promotion. Um, but it's a very limited and narrow right. It doesn't mean that when government is exercising its legitimate authority, raising a military or passing taxes or making general laws for um, uh, the conduct of society, if those laws impact religious individuals, uh, as long as it's within the original or the proper jurisdiction of government, uh, then um, religious freedom doesn't give you a right to be exempt from those laws. Um, so I, I, the, the way I like to talk about it is uh, the I, founder's idea of religious liberty is a narrow but deep concept. Um, it, it really protects the core exercise of religious, religious worship. Thank you so much for that. Um, Kathleen Phillips' work is uh, significant, uh, as he said, not all agree, and he is arguing that as a matter of original understanding, the First Amendment does not create a presumptive right to uh, exemptions from general laws as long as the law has a valid civic purpose. Uh, do you agree or disagree, and, and why? Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you for the opportunity uh, to, to be here. I agree with uh, Philip that um, the First Amendment uh, should be construed to uh, prohibit the government from directly interfering with religious uh, beliefs, worship choices, and to that extent, it is a there is a there is a distinction of jurisdictions between government and uh, religion. Uh, but I, but I, when I look, when I construe the Constitution, I look both at what the founders and those who ratified it may have understood it to mean at that time, and more broadly, what were the principles that they had uh, in mind. And I think the fundamental principle, and this is connected to a number of things that, that Phillips said, uh, the fundamental principle is that government should not interfere with the choices of individuals with respect to their religious uh, professions and, and practice. And for those in the founding era, that meant primarily not uh, intentionally interfering with those matters by um, directly compelling or suppressing religious belief and practice. That was, after all, their experience. That was the experience in the colonial era. That was the experience uh, in, in Europe. And that is primarily what they had uh, in mind. But the reason, the reasons that they uh, were concerned about that go deeper than just that expectation. And part of the reasons uh, are related to what Philip said with respect to uh, the primary importance of religious convictions for religious believers. Believers have a primary obligation or allegiance 
to to the divine. That's how religion works in the lives uh, of believers. And in his memorial remonstrance, James Madison mentioned that the duty to the creator uh, takes precedence in terms of uh, time and degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. Uh, And Thomas Jefferson, when he was on uh, the board for the new University of Virginia, uh, was part of the authors of a report that called the relations between individuals uh, and and their makers uh, the most interesting and important thing uh, in their lives. And for uh, those in the founding era, that connection, that possibility of connection between people uh, and their creator or the divine more broadly understood as we would understand it uh, today, not just in theistic terms, uh, gave uh, people uh, a, a, uh, a special dignity by virtue of that ability to, to ponder and to relate uh, to, to the origin or source uh, of all uh, being. And, it, and Madison actually called... Uh, conscience, uh, a sacred castle. So it, it was a, a sacred matter, and that meant that there was there was a jurisdictional divide of sorts. Government uh, did not have a role in religious matters, but I think that it it went deeper than that. Whether they had an expectation with respect to what the Constitution meant at the time is a matter of debate, but they certainly expected governments to. Um, Uh, to be solicitous when conflicts arose. Uh, And as a matter of fact, governments in the founding era were quite solicitous when pacifists didn't want uh, to uh, fight in the the Revolutionary War or or in general, accommodations were made. When uh, religious groups didn't want to take oaths, affirmations were allowed at the state level. And in the first Congress, you see a debate over whether or not uh, the the First Amendment sh- or the Bill of Rights should include a protection for religious pacifists. Everyone agreed that religious pacifists should be protected. The question was whether or not the protection needed to be part of the Constitution, whether it should be a matter of legislative uh, responsibility or benevolence. Uh, instead, whether the protection should be understood as part of that core idea of the rights of conscience or whether or not, again, it was a matter of legislative right. But everyone agreed on protecting conscience because there was a shared idea that uh, individuals, uh, that relationship with the divine was primary, that people should follow where conscience led. Not that there were no limits. There were certainly limits uh, in state state constitutions. Uh, it was not an unlimited Right. But when you ask today, how should we understand the Constitution? I don't think we should just count heads in terms of what would people have expected in the founding era the Constitution to have meant then. Philip may be right that it just they just primarily had in mind intentional interference, but they certainly were solicitous of conscience in general. And today, when we can no longer count on uh, the kind of benevolence that they counted on, that those who debated that protection for conscientious objection for the Bill of Rights, which, by the way, is not in the Bill of Rights. They expected legislative benevolence. They expected it because the moral divides were not as deep then. Conscientious objection was a matter of moral perfection. It was not a matter of real genuine moral pluralism. We don't, we can't expect that kind of benevolence today. We don't, we have huge fights about uh, these issues. So today, respecting conscience uh, requires, I believe, us to interpret the First Amendment in light of the principles and the reasons that 
that would that that underlie that principle of respecting uh, conscience, that relationship between individuals uh, and and the government. Uh, and as a matter of fact, as you know, shortly after the adoption of the Bill of Rights, you see a liberalization in the states about what the, the idea of free exercise meant. The time that the nation um, uh, began, you had a lot of uh, restrictions on who could hold office, religious tests for office holding. Those quickly were removed. And in Torcaso versus Watkins in the 1960s, the Supreme Court held that that kind of imposition of civil disability on um, on office holding was a violation of uh, free exercise, even though those in the those who drafted the First Amendment probably wouldn't have understood it that way because that kind of restriction was was commonplace. But it was inconsistent with their principle of non-interference with matters of faith uh, and the underlying reasons for that, which was a respect for conscience uh, and and also a concern about civil, civic divisiveness. If you don't respect conscience, it's such an important matter to individuals. Thank you so much for that nuanced and, and, and thoughtful response. Philip, you say you see the question of the fact that Quakers were sometimes exempted from military service um, as a point in your favor, because you note that these exemptions were not granted as a result of federal, state or federal constitutional religious free exercise yeah. provisions, but uh, just under the authority of uh, state uh, constitutional provisions that specifically recognized a right of conscientious exemption from military service or through ordinary legislation. And just to put this point sharply on the table so our friends who are watching understand this, your argument about Quaker exemptions, Philip, suggests that the conservative justices on the Supreme Court are wrong when they cite these Quaker religious exemptions as a point in favor of a broad constitutional right in favor of religious exemptions, because you say that they were granted at the time of the framing as a matter of state constitutional law or as a matter of legislative grace, not um, in terms of the understanding of the federal constitution. Tell us more about, about that argument and why you think the Quaker exemptions do not cut in favor of broad religious exemptions under the First Amendment. Sure, right. Uh, those are uh, very thoughtful questions. Um, let, me, let me back up maybe just a little bit and just try to clarify. Um, uh, I mean, there's actually two debates uh, or two questions uh, we're wrestling with. Uh, the first is more historical. Um, you know, what is the original understanding of, of the free exercise clause? And that's a matter of history and the philosophy that uh, animated the drafting uh, of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Um, but that's primarily a historical question. Um, and then there's a, a, a related but re really a separate question what what's required or what's necessary or what's the best constitutional way to protect religious freedom today now they could have you could have the same answer or you might have different answers um, those uh, scholars and justices who are originalists are particularly interested in um, the original understanding um, uh, of course my work is to try to articulate the original understanding uh, but that's prefatory I think and I mean, you have to figure out what the original understanding is. I mean, I guess if you're an originalist and a judge, you, that's binding on you. Um, my work as a scholar is to say, well, this is the original understanding. Um, once we have that knowledge, then we have to think about, well, should we follow the original understanding? Is it, is it relevant today? Is it not relevant? Is it, does it work still work? And those are really separate questions, I think. So uh, let me focus on the original understanding, but recognizing that uh, things Kathleen said, um, this is really Justice Brennan, the great liberal justice of the second half of the 20th century. You know, he, he's really the modern author of the exemptionist approach to the First Amendment. 
And uh, he was very clear, um, whatever the original understanding is, uh, really Kathleen was articulating his position quite nicely, um, to protect religious freedom today requires a, a more robust understanding uh, than the founders, he thought, uh, more more judicial protection. So, so there are really two questions here. What is the original understanding? And then what makes most sense today? What would be the best constitution today? So let me just focus on the first one for a second, uh, addressing the question you asked about Quakers. Um, so Quakers, of course, are pacifists, uh, and they don't want to fight. Uh, they, they let me rephrase that. They believe their religious commitments do not allow them to engage in warfare. Um, obviously, the America was born out, out of a revolutionary war. And so George Washington, uh, you know, our first president, faced this directly as, as commander-in-chief. I mean, Quakers were, um, a group of seven Quakers were marched with guns tied to their backs because they won't carry them to Washington. And, and, and Washington did what um, I think any good general would do. He said, look uh, to the Quakers, go, you know, go home. He wasn't going to make them fight and, and violate their conscience. Um, now that said, that uh, so what, what Kathleen says is exactly right. Quakers were accommodated both in practice by George Washington, by the first Congress, by uh, state legislatures, um, but these were always done legislatively. Uh, the question for the First Amendment is, do, do individuals like the Quakers have a right to be exempt, a constitutionally guaranteed right to be exempt? And here, I actually think the record from the original record is pretty clear. Um, as Kathleen mentioned, um, they debated this question in the first Congress. The first Congress drafted the First Amendment. So in the, in the middle of the drafting of the First Amendment, some people said, um, let me rephrase that, in the middle of the drafting of the Bill of Rights, some people said, we need a provision to exempt Quakers. Um, that draft, uh, that debate actually occurred when they were drafting the Second Amendment relating to militia, not, not the First Amendment, which is interesting and revealing, I think, um, uh, they adopted the text of the First Amendment, and then they had a debate over drafting uh, an amendment about Quakers. I think that implies it wasn't, an exemption wasn't in the First Amendment. Scholars disagree on that, but nonetheless, they had this debate uh, in the first Congress, should we have an amendment to protect Quakers and other pacifists for religious uh, conscious reasons? Um, at one point, the House of Representatives adopted a provision that would have extended a constitutional right to exemptions, but when they actually adopted the text, they rejected that proposal. So I actually think this is sort of definitive evidence. Um, they proposed an exemption amendment and they rejected it. And if that's not clear um, evidence for what the original meaning of the Bill of Rights is, I don't really know what is. Now, again, that's just what the original meaning was and, and maybe we, sh we shouldn't follow that today. That's another question. Um, but it does seem to me that's definitive evidence. And and that would mean, I mean, if I'm right, it means Justice Alito um, and uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas uh, are wrong, at least in a historical perspective. Again, recognizing that there's more than one one issue in this question. Kathleen, could I ask for your thoughts on that specific point? Do you agree or disagree with Vincent that Justices Alito and Gorsuch and Thomas are wrong on the specific question of religiously compelled exemptions? And if, for example, there were no um, exemption from military service for Quakers today. Uh, do you agree with him that the First Amendment would not compel it? Um, I, I agree with uh, Philip about the uh, original meaning of the First Amendment, although, and I have written to that effect, we, we agree uh, that uh, the those who drafted uh, the First Amendment and, and those who ratified it uh, would not have expected 
the free exercise clause to include a right of exemption protecting uh, religious pacifists. Although I, I'll make a little uh, counter argument here. Uh, Justice uh, Alito in um, <clears throat> in Fulton, he does point out that maybe uh, conscientious objection was a was a special case where there were uh, questions of national uh, exigency at, at stake. Right. Um, having enough fighters for a war is certainly a matter uh, of, of great importance. So perhaps this was debated, the particular protection for religious pacifists was debated because it wasn't certain whether or not a limit on um, religious exemptions or right of exemption already in the free exercise clause would have applied. So maybe they maybe they they understood the free exercise the principle of free exercise to include a right of exemption, but this is a hard case, so they're going to debate it, um, and 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 that's all that means. Um, I, I I I find the argument interesting, Justice Alito's argument interesting, but not convincing. I'm I'm with Philip, uh, but for me, I guess I have a slightly different understanding of what a historical interpretation of the First Amendment uh, means. Uh, in my view, you can't, you shouldn't end with what the original meaning or expectation was with respect to uh, something like uh, the the free exercise uh, clause, um, which is sort of a. It's not so specific that it's that there's no matter of interpretation. It's free exercise, sort of general general idea uh, to begin with. Obviously, I'm not going to uh, change. Say we sh- should change something like the age of 35 to be president. Um, but in any event, going back to what does it, what does a historical understanding uh, mean? I still think I have a historical understanding. My view is that an understanding of history has to look, uh, look towards what the, what the concerns, what the principles and concerns were of those who drafted and adopted uh, the constitution. Because if you don't have that deeper historical understanding, uh, your interpretation uh, over time might become disconnected from those concerns, from those 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 principles that I believe are so uh, so important. Uh, and uh, to give you an example from the organizational context, because after all, Fulton did involve uh, a question of organizational religious freedom. Uh, in 2012, the Supreme Court recognized a ministerial exemption to neutral, generally applicable employment discrimination laws. So neutral, generally applicable employment discrimination laws uh, cannot interfere with the choice of clergy by religious uh, institutions. And the court uh, pointed to particular um, history uh, in England and and America where the government was directly interfering with, with the choice of clergy. But in 2020, the court expanded that understanding of a ministerial exemption to be a broader understanding of key employees. And then it started talking in terms of a principle, what it called a broad principle of church autonomy. And underlying that broad principle, and it's the essence of that broad principle, was the idea that certain um, matters of church government that are critical to religious mission and an interference of which would impact the development of religious faith and doctrine, those have to be protected from government uh, interference too. So the, the court itself, um, the conservatives on the court moved from just 
I, you know, what were those in the founding era thinking of? What were their concerns at the time to an understanding of their principle? What was the principle behind saying the government can't directly interfere with the choice of ministers? Well, the principle is you don't want to interfere with the development of doctrine in a religious institution. And what might that require today? So that's the kind of historical analysis that I'm doing. It's not that I'm not doing historical analysis. It's just a slightly different uh, kind of, though I'm interested in original meaning, it's just that I say, well, let's get what are the concerns that lay behind that, the broader principles. Well, Doug, I want you to adjudicate this crucially important um, question. So Philip and Kathleen have agreed on, on something important, although they have different perspectives, that Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas are wrong to say that the First Amendment, as originally understood, would have required broad religious exemptions. On that particular point, uh, do you think they are correct or not? I don't think there's an answer to that question. I, I think in some ways it's, it's a question based on a mistaken premise. The, the general right to exemptions was not a serious issue in their time and it wasn't where their attention was focused. Their attention was focused on how to finance the church. Uh, what to do about church taxes, what to do about established churches, how to go through the process of disestablishment. They dealt with exemptions one issue at a time, and because they had much more religious homogeneity than we have, and much less government regulation than we have. So the issue arose only occasionally, but it did arise, and uh, regularly legislatures granted exemptions, and it wasn't just military service. Uh, the Quakers were also exempted from storing oaths. Um, in a couple of colonies, they were exempted from uh, removing their hat in court. That stemmed from a famous incident with William Penn. Um, the Jews in Rhode Island were exempted from the Christian incest, incest rules and allowed to apply their own rules. Um, and every colony that still had uh, a church tax exempted dissenters from it, uh, from paying it eventually. Um, so when confronted with issues of religious liberty, uh, their conclusion was uh, exemptions are necessary to implement it. And that was true even in the colonies with the most intolerant histories, like Massachusetts and Connecticut, where they once hanged Quakers for being in the state. Um, once they said Quakers can live here, they pretty quickly followed up with, and they don't have to serve in the military, and they don't have to swear oaths, because the the declaration that you live here didn't accomplish any of its purpose if they couldn't also practice their faith when they were there now as uh professor munoz says these didn't come from courts they didn't have judicial review yet in colonial courts uh, so that didn't tell us much of anything um but the societal reaction of that generation was when faced with these exemption questions you should exempt if if it's workable and feasible um the issue of exemption from military service tells us almost nothing about the general issue because that is absolutely the hardest exemption question. On the one hand, uh, whether you agree with it or not, everyone understands the moral weight of a conviction that I cannot kill, right? We all believe thou shalt not kill, just some of us make more exceptions than other people. So it's a powerful claim to exemption, but it's also a powerful claim to government compelling interest, right? Um, they granted the Quakers exemptions during the revolution when national existence was on the line, when Philadelphia was an occupied city. Um, <clears throat> but do you put that in the constitution? 
um, specifically military exemptions. Well, actually, you know, they, they, they didn't, but a refusal to guarantee exemption from the military draft doesn't tell you whether the Constitution requires an exemption from giving communion wine to minors. Doesn't tell you whether it requires an exemption from letting ministers serve their churches. Uh, cases where there's not nearly the same kind of government interest on the other side. So, um, so the you know, they didn't have a formed intent one way or the other, is my view. But but certainly the Second Amendment debate about military exemptions, I don't think, begins to answer the broader question. Thank you very much for that, and it's great to have your uh, perspective, and I'm, I'm glad you can join the discussion. So, Philip, to, to sum up where we are uh, so far, um, two, two of you think that the framers didn't clearly require judicially created exemptions, and uh, a third, Doug, says that you, it's hard to answer the question because there were legislatively granted uh, exemptions, but uh, they didn't uh, clearly address the question of whether courts should create these exemptions. Let's talk about the modern controversies. All of the most controversial questions before the Supreme Court now involving religious exemptions have to do with their scope. So um, from the Masterpiece Cake uh, case to the Fulton uh, case involving uh, foster care in Philadelphia, the court so far has avoided um, squarely addressing how broadly the Constitution requires religious exemptions, um, although several justices have suggested that they're they're broad. When it comes to the modern cases, Philip, for an originalist justice, how broadly do you sweep, for example, to take the Cake case, do you believe that um, a fair construction of the free exercise clause, you know, as originally understood and would require uh, an exemption for the Baker and tell us about other cases involving exemptions from uh, laws forbidding discrimination against LGBTQ uh, people. Uh, are, are, how broadly should an originalist say that those exemptions sweep? No, these are these are good questions, and I, I'm I'm glad uh, Professor Laycock was able to join us. Uh, he's, as I said, uh, one of the nation's real authorities on this. Um, I, I, so there's a, a couple interesting threads. Let me try to pick up on all of them. Um, one, um, um, uh, Professor Brady has a, a, um, has said something which I very much agree with. Uh, so um, there are different types of constitutional texts. There are rules, and she mentioned uh, the president must be 35 years of age. That's a rule. But then there are other constitutional texts which are principles. Uh, the free exercise of religion, I think, is a principle. And um, and, and and then she said, well. To, uh, there, there's what the founders might have expected the principle to mean, but really let's go, if we really want to interpret these texts um, intelligently in the modern world, we should look to the, un to the underlying meaning of the principle or the, the principle itself, uh, which she understands to be um, non-interference with religious choice. And I think Professor Laycock has written about autonomy, uh, autonomy and deeply held beliefs or autonomy and religious choice. Um, uh, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I actually think the principle is different, though, than the, what they're saying. Um, so that there's a there's a real difference here. Um, I really think the founders were um, trying to articulate a jurisdictional principle, uh, and I disagree with Professor Laycock. I think they thought about this quite a lot um, because they thought about the social compact quite a lot, and they thought about the meaning of natural rights quite a lot. Um, I think he depreciates um, how intentional they were about trying to articulate the idea of an inalienable right to religious liberty and what this means. 
And for them, it meant a jurisdictional concept. We don't give government authority over this slice of our natural liberty, over our religious exercises. I think that's very important. I think that was very thoughtful. Um, I think it's very intelligent. Whether that's still a, a worthy principle to follow today is a different question, but, but I do think they were considered. Um, uh, you just look to Madison's Memorial Remonstrance, you look to Federalist 10, you look at Washington's letter to the Quakers. I mean, Washington writes to the Quakers after he's elected president. Quakers write to Washington saying, we're so happy you're president, uh, someone who respects religious liberty. And Washington writes back to the Quakers, you know, you're terrific citizens, except in your refusal to take up arms in the common defense. I mean, he scorns them for not performing the obligations of citizens. I think we forget that. He does say his wish and desire is that the law be accommodated, accommodate them. But he doesn't agree with them, and he lets them know that, because citizens should fight in defense of their country. Right, and um, the general principle of the rule of law is the, the the law should apply to everyone the same. Right, and I think that was a considered understanding of the founders, central to their constitutional project. Right. The law is not perfect, so sometimes you have exemptions, but for the law to really be the rule of law, I think the founders really did think um, uh, that the law should apply to everyone. Uh, And if the law can't apply to everyone, we ought to really think of whether we should have that law at all. And I think that's the way they would have thought about it primarily. Uh, On these modern cases, I mean... um, you know, there, the masterpiece Kate Shop, uh, Justice Kennedy said, "Look, um, the 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 uh, cake maker didn't get a fair hearing. It was clearly religious animus. They were targeting this guy for his religious beliefs, and you can't do that." Um, and I think the the record. I mean, that that case is a singular case, and the record seems to suggest that. And there is similar things in Fulton, though. Uh, you know, my general position is. Um, at least according to the original meaning, everyone ought to follow the law. I mean, if, if you don't like the law, you find it oppressive, you should try to repeal the law. And maybe you want to have a conversation of what tolerance should look like and um, how do we let people live and let live in a pluralistic society. But those are different than the, the, than the original legal question of what the First Amendment provides. Thank you very much for that and for so clearly putting that principle. If you don't uh, like the law, you should repeal it. And if it can't apply to everyone, then it shouldn't apply at all. Uh, Kathleen, what are your thoughts about the modern cases? You have a nuanced uh, test for evaluating um, exemption claims, just to get concrete, in the in the cases that everyone will know about, the, the Cake case and Fulton involving Catholic social services, as well as perhaps some of the vaccine cases or, or others. Give us specific examples of, of, of what your t- test is and, and how it would apply in the case that the court is considering. One of the, I, I'm going to sort of maybe split a tiny hair between um, uh, Philip and and Doug with respect to um, what what um, were those in the founding era thinking about. Doug mentioned that they didn't have a formed intent about the exemption question, uh, although they did consider you know certain issues that that did arise, and as they arose, they were they were they were solicitous um and what i think they definitely didn't have a formed intent about was the types of conflicts that we're seeing today where uh, as i mentioned earlier it's not a matter of moral perfectionism like pacifism it's a matter of deep 
uh, moral disagreement over issues like you know, related to family um, and sexuality. And um, in current circumstances, we can see that where there are these sort of deep divisions, um, there's not near the solicitude that that you had in in the founding uh, era. And, and I thought I, I just pulled up George Washington's full, uh, quote, Philip mentioned this, and, and I think you can hear the solicitude. And I, I agree with, with Philip that he was exasperated by, by uh, the pacifists. But here's, here's the solicitude. It is my wish and desire that the laws may always be as extensively accommodated to them as a due regard to the protection and essential interests of the nation may justify and permit. So, you know, as extensively accommodated uh, to them as basically as is possible outside of, you know, um, um, <clears throat> the survival of the, the, the state, um, essential interests of, of the nation. Uh, so that's pretty solicitous, even though he was frustrated um, uh, with with pacifists. But we, we, would, we don't have that as a broad matter today. And we have a lot of conflicts because government is broader and there's a broader understanding of what government purpose is are. It's not the minimalist state of Thomas Jefferson, where he, image, he, he envisioned government as a matter of uh, protecting uh, people from injury uh, uh, from, from others uh, and the like. It's a much broader state. Conflicts are much more common. So as you point out, our biggest hot button uh, issues today over matters of family and and sexuality, though there are plenty of little button issues that we often don't don't think about, where it may not be that it's that you know people are not necessarily solicitous; they may just not notice um, what uh, truly minority phase are are, are facing. Uh, there may be um, bureaucratic inflexibility that doesn't have to do with not caring, and all of these things you know have to have to um, be put in, into the picture of how should we interpret, um, the, how should we interpret the principle that the founders enacted today? So how would, how would I look at it? I, as I mentioned, I would, um, interpret the first amendment to include a right of exemption to be consistent with the founding, founding era principle. But, um, specifically I would, I would look and I would see what are the limits that there, that exist in the founding era, uh, both as a historical matter, because I think they make sense. So there were two types of limits that you saw in, in state um, constitutions. There were limits where religious practice interfered with the rights of others. And there were limits where the peace, safety of the state was at stake, like George Washington mentioned, or basic conditions of, of public order. Uh, really, you know, this isn't the compelling state interest test I would use. That's very vague. These are sort of more specific things that I think would be, uh, would be limits. So when it comes to a question of um, uh, the, the baker in, in Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, the question there is the rights of others. And, and I, I do think that the rights of others are not just life, liberty, and property, but economic, but um, civil rights, government benefits that ensure economic opportunity. But the, the question is, if something is important, like the rights of conscience, like free exercise is, it's not just a question of whether that interest is at stake, whether there are third party rights at stake, but whether or not uh, you need to impinge upon religious conscience in order to protect those rights. That's the that's the specific question. And when you get to the um, the COVID restrictions qu uh, question, there it's a matter of also uh, the rights of others. In this case, uh, their right to to health and life. So again, I think that's certainly an interest that limits a right of exemption. But the question then becomes 
what kind of uh, restrictions um, are truly necessary to to protect those those interests. There has to be a tight tailoring between what the government does and what these interests are. And I think a lot of the a lot of the problem is is that we don't really look for um, solutions compromises that really can exist or can be created if people were more solicitous on both sides of the issue. But that's where I think when you uh, put a right of exemption into operation, what courts should be looking for. Is it necessary to impose upon religious liberty in order to protect the rights of others or uh, uh, important matters of, of uh, state security, peace and order? Thank you so much for uh for, for that very thoughtful response and for addressing issues ranging from the K case to COVID vaccinations. That's a great response to one of our questioners, uh, Cindy Berman Rowe, my college classmate. Hi, Cindy, who asks on a practical level, can schools and businesses deny religious exemptions for the COVID vaccine? Um, Doug, I would love you to share your nuanced approach for how to identify uh, whether religious exemptions are required in your amicus briefs in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case and the Fulton case, you argued that in those two cases, free exercises did require religious exemptions, but you say that uh, religious exemptions are not required in the case of COVID vaccines. Um, so give us a sense of what principle you're applying and you think the court should apply to distinguish among these various cases and whether or not you think the court should overturn uh, the Smith case, which uh, says that generally applicable laws don't generally require religious exemptions. I'll answer those questions. Let me say just a word about uh, some of the 18th century quotations that, uh, that Philip and Kathleen were talking about. Yeah, they didn't directly address the question, right? What can we infer from George Washington noting his reservation about the Quakers while encouraging exemption? Or, you know, what did Madison say in the Memorial and Remonstrance? Actually said our duties to God are prior to our duties to civil society and can't be waived. Um, but none of the, there was no square debate on a general right to exemptions, right? We're trying to tease out implications of, of uh, rather isolated statements that weren't directly addressing the question. On the modern cases, um, sure, the rights of others are important, but but you got to say what kind of rights or how important rights. There are people who think they have an absolute right to the shade of white paint they approve of on their neighbor's house. Um, so, you know, there, there are rights that really protect people and there are rights that are really more sort of preferences. In the gay rights cases, which get all the publicity but are really quite atypical. So let, let me start with the typical cases. The cases that get no publicity are about beards and long hair and grooming rules about Amish buggies, about Saturday Sabbath observers, both Christian and Jewish. There are about a whole range of things that aren't very controversial and don't get much publicity. Uh, and if there's no right to exemptions in the free exercise clause, then none of those things are protected either. Um, we do have deep disagreement about sexual morality, and that drives much of this conflict. And both sides, both the religious conservatives and the gay rights movement, are deeply intolerant of the other. Um, they want total wins for their side and total suppression for the other side. The, you know, the many of the outspoken conservative, and, and I'm generalizing here, obviously there are tolerant exceptions on both sides, but many of the outspoken uh, leaders of the conservative Christian movement don't want gay marriage, don't want 
laws protecting against LGBT discrimination. 24 or so states don't have such laws because of opposition from that quarter. And on the gay rights side, they don't want any exemptions at all. Or maybe the minister doesn't have to do the wedding ceremony, but that's it. No exemptions beyond that. And that makes compromise uh, impossible. You have to either suppress the, this huge religious movement or you have to suppress this much smaller but very important uh, group of people with different sexual orientation. Exemptions make compromise possible. They allow both sides to live uh, by their own deepest values. Um, if we imagine a wedding cake baker in an isolated rural community and he's the only one around, then I think he has to make the cake. Um, you know, the, the right to, for the gay community to access the market um, uh, the government probably has a compelling interest in protecting that. Um, the exemption for the wedding cake baker who is not a local monopolist is also about his right to access the market without uh, surrendering his deepest values. Uh, the other issue that arises much more commonly, the issue in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, was not access to the market. They were immediately offered a free cake by another good baker. Um, it's, I'm insulted. I'm offended. Uh, you turn away my business because you disapprove of my morals, and that's deeply offensive. And I understand that, that that's a harm, uh, but it's no greater harm than the harm to the baker of saying, you know, you have to get out of business uh, or surrender your moral commitments because everyone else disapproves of what you believe. That's not, uh, you know, protecting people from offense has never been a compelling interest in the free speech cases. The court has said that over and over, and it's no more compelling in the free exercise cases. Um, the vaccine cases, I think, are very different. Um, there's and courts, uh, there've been a couple of preliminary decisions lately uh, in joining vaccine commitments. I think those are deeply wrong. There's clearly a compelling interest in protecting the public health and every court to have addressed the issue uh, before the last month uh, has said that, has upheld vaccination requirements against challenge on religious grounds. I think that is clearly right. Um, the the other COVID cases about uh, churches meeting, I you know, can you hold a worship service is about as close to the core of free exercise as you can get, but I think the answer had to be no for some of those time periods. Um, those cases are argued on grounds of discrimination and that some of the, you know, some of the, um, commercial operations that were allowed to be open and meet were uh, no more dangerous than a church service. Um, I think I think uh, the church service was more dangerous uh, because people sit together in close proximity for long periods of time. You have to be very careful and very cautious and make sure you're not limiting worship more than absolutely necessary. But it was absolutely necessary for a time. I think there was a compelling interest and say no live services with large large groups of people. So yeah, you have to kind of go case by case. You have to be cautious, but religious exercise involves conduct and conduct creates more occasions in which it is really important to, to regulate than, than speech does. So sometimes uh, the party seeking religious exemption should lose. Thank you very much for that, uh, Doug. Uh, well, it's time for closing thoughts in this deep and significant discussion. I just want to note two pieces that caught my eye uh, online this morning. One is that uh, in Ohio, the legislature has recently adopted a law that says that 
health providers and insurance companies have the freedom to decline to perform, participate in, or pay for any healthcare service which violates the practitioner's or payer's conscience as informed by the moral, ethical, or religious beliefs. And on the other side of the um, exemption scale, there was the a piece on the post arguing that if someone uh, believed in good conscience, according to the dictates of their reason that uh, life uh, did not uh, begin at conception, but instead began around viability, they should have the ability to opt out of a, a Texas ban, which uh, uh, forbade uh, abortions after six weeks. So recognizing that a strong presumption of religious exemptions can cut in both of these directions. I'd like each of you to give us your closing thoughts in just a few sentences and tell us um, if the court continues to adopt a strong presumption of exemptions from generally applicable laws under the First Amendment, where do you think this is going? Uh, Philip, uh, uh, first thoughts to you. Yeah, let, let me just uh, say thank you again to Jeff and to the National Constitution Center, to Kathleen and Doug, and um, it's a privilege to be a part of this conversation. Um, so two, two closing thoughts. Um, I mean, one, we should, we should I, 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 if Doug was uh, the whole Supreme Court, I mean, his judgment, I think, is very good in the nuance on exemption in this case and exempt and non-exemption in that case and all the factors on how close are people sitting, how many um, uh, bakeries are in the town. Those, those are um, all very reasonable considerations, I think. Um, I suppose my problem with that is it's not clear to me how you get that out of the First Amendment, that the First Amendment means one thing if there are several bakeries in town, it means something else if there's only one bakery. That just doesn't, that's just not how I think a constitution is supposed to work. I think these are legislative judgments. Um, I would certainly vote for Doug as my state legislature, legislator. Um, his judgment's very sound, but I, I just don't think that's the rule of law to be to be candid. Um, on Kathleen's point about, look, our society is more regulated. Uh, uh, the, the law does more uh, now, and therefore there's more conflict with uh, religious organizations, especially given the polarization and deep moral divisions in our society. I think that's all obviously true. She's exactly right. Um, uh, one way is we have lots of regulation of private conduct and lots of exemptions to, to, for us to get along. Um, another possibility is we have less regulation of private conduct and fewer exemptions. And we learn to go back to that old fashioned value of tolerance and we just let people live their lives and try not to interfere with them. Um, that's sort of my favorite policy position. I, I wish we would all just be more tolerant and let people live their own lives. Um, and, and not try to uh, regulate or legislate them out of existence. I think that's still the common sense America. And I think if we did more of that, we'd need fewer exemptions. But those are legislative considerations, I actually think, not, not legal considerations, not, not constitutional considerations. Thank you so much for that. Kathleen, your final thoughts. Um, yeah, I'm, I, my final thought's going to take off from your question, but turn it in a slightly uh, different, different direction. And what you raised was the issue of if we have a presumptive right of exemption uh, for um, claims of religious conscience under the First Amendment. Um, you know, what about moral claims of um, moral conscience that aren't religiously uh, based? Where, 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 where are we heading? Should we incorporate uh, freedom from moral conscience more generally, not just religiously based conscience? And, and if, if we're heading in that direction, I, you know, how broad is it going to be? And, and I, I actually, um, think that it's important to uh, respect uh, non-religious uh, moral 
uh, conscience for a number of, of reasons, but uh, it religiously based claims of conscience are different. And that's one of the, I think the, the thing I want to, you know, leave with they're they're different because they involve the relationship between individuals and the divine and the divine is as thomas jefferson uh, mentioned in that in that uh, board report for the university of virginia uh the most interesting and important thing for for human beings and and one of the reasons that that the smith case in the court which held no exemptions hasn't stuck all of these years is because it doesn't fit with with human nature it doesn't fit uh with the fact that many americans are religious probably always will be religious because there is that capacity to to question uh our existence to think about the idea of a divine at least and to strive for a relationship with the divine and being as important as that is for people i i believe that something like the smith rule just won't stick it doesn't fit with human it, nature it, it doesn't fit with human uh human history and what uh, will continue no likely are unlike are very likely to be the makeup of American society that there'll be a lot of uh, religious people and the other thing it that that happens when you have a rule like Smith that doesn't stick uh, is um, it doesn't stick because it doesn't fit really very well um, with human nature is it's destabilizing and I think that our fights about religious exemptions have become so destabilizing uh, in our in our country and see the dangers of not um, not accommodating conscience, of course, with limits in mind, always have to be limits. Otherwise, it'd be destabilizing on the on the other side. But these sort of fights have um, have fed civic distrust. They've um, they've fed polarization. They've fed the politicization of religion on very, very, um, I think, dangerous ways. And I think understanding the distinctiveness of religion and the importance of the claims of religious conscience to people and having a rule that fits what the founders understood about that importance, uh, fits with the reasons behind their principle, would be more uh, stabilizing and also better fit human dignity. Thank you so much for that. Doug, last words to you. Yeah, it, it, it's fatuous to tell deeply unpopular uh, religious minorities in a highly polarized society to go to the legislature. Um, conservative Christians cannot win a legislative battle in blue states, and the LGBT community cannot win a legislative battle in red states. Yes, we ought to all be more tolerant, but we aren't. Uh, and you know, the, the judiciary is recognized for uh, 80 years now. Um, part of what it has to do in the enforcement of constitutional rights is protect uh, unpopular minorities that are largely shut out of the legislative process. Um, and the First Amendment is written in absolute terms. Congress should make no law abridging the free exercise of religion, prohibiting the free exercise of religion, uh, abridging freedom of speech. The court learned a long time ago, you can't literally say no law. There have to be exceptions when there are really important reasons for overriding those absolute constitutional rights. And yeah, that leads to some fine line drawing sometimes, like, you know, is there another baker available? Is there not another baker available? Where does that come out of the Constitution? It comes out of the uh, necessity of making implied exceptions for cases of necessity, and they should be limited to true necessity. They shouldn't be limited to how popular we think a particular exercise of the constitutional right is. Um, yeah, keep in mind that uh, when Smith first came down, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, unanimously in the House in 1973 in the Senate and Bill Clinton enthusiastically signed it. These, the right to exemptions did not seem so polarizing before 
it was consumed by the deep polarization over over sexual morality. And we cannot let that particular issue swallow the entire right to exemptions. Um, Smith should be overruled because it vastly complicates every litigation. It's not as important as it once was because the the conservatives on the court have taken the, the exceptions to Smith and extended them as far as possible. And so they can nearly always find a way out from under Smith. But both sides and the court waste an awful lot of time litigating those exceptions. It would be better to go straight to the real issues. Is there a serious burden on religious liberty here? And is there a sufficient necessity uh, for imposing that burden? And, and one final note, the Supreme Court appears polarized on these issues, but it's not as polarized as first appears. There have been a number of unanimous decisions granting exemptions. The liberals care about religious liberty but they care about gay rights and women's rights more. The conservatives care deeply about religious liberty. They care about capital punishment more. On Monday, I filed a brief in a capital punishment case, and in all the precedents, most of the conservatives were voting against me. Um, so, you know, both sides care about religious liberty, but they both have other issues that they care about more deeply. Thank you so much, uh, Philip Munoz, uh, Kathleen Brady, and Douglas Laycock for a really significant discussion about one of the central issues uh, uh, before the courts today. Friends, thank you for joining, for taking an hour in the moment, middle of your days to learn and grow together. And your homework is to read, go to the chat and read the great books and articles of our panelists and read the primary sources, beginning with Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance, which quotes the Virginia Declaration of Rights. And these are the words that I wanna end on to inspire you to read and learn more that religion or the duty which we owe to our creator and the manner of discharging it can be directed only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. A shining example of the enlightenment philosophy that inspired the founders and that uh, can inspire us today to grow in wisdom. Thank you, friends. Thanks to our panelists and look forward to reconvening on America's Town Hall very soon. Thanks to all. Bye. This episode was produced by John Guerra, Tanea Tauber, Lana Ulrich, and me, Jackie McDermott. It was engineered by David Stotts. If you'd like to learn more about religious exemptions and some of the high-profile Supreme Court cases where they've been at issue, like Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, check out some of our other podcast episodes and town halls on that topic. We'll link to them in our show notes. And you can always find more content on religion and the Constitution in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution. We also have many other exciting town hall programs coming up this fall. Check out the full lineup and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org debate. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.